0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of more than 130 awesome interviews and follow us on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimony of the recovery available to all in AA. Today's episode is an encore presentation of my interview with Tom D., originally released in January 2021. On my show today is Tom D., a man with an incredible story, whose life was turned inside out and upside down by alcoholism, drug addiction, and crime. From a difficult childhood, he emerged into a troubled adolescence, drinking at 14, shoplifting, and getting kicked out of high school. Hanging with the older boys, his drinking increased beyond sociable, and his drugs got harder, culminating in a ruinous heroin addiction. His twenties and his early thirties saw him in and out of county jails and state prison until his third felony conviction for armed robbery at age 36 finally resulted in a life sentence at a maximum security prison. With alcohol and various drugs widely available from other inmates, his life behind bars provided little chance of sobriety or parole. Amidst the bleak realization that he'd spend the rest of his life in prison, there came a small spark of hope ignited by memories of the early AA meetings Tom had attended during his many stints in the county jails. Though he hadn't succeeded with the program in the past, he started going to AA meetings in prison, brought there by a small group of dedicated members of the outside AA community. He found his sponsor inside, who guided him in working the Twelve Steps, Slowly, he began to turn his thinking and spiritual awareness around. Ultimately, he found that service to other inmates from a genuinely humble frame of mind gave his life newfound meaning and purpose. But that's just part of his story. You'll hear the rest in a moment. Suffice it to say that Tom's AA program, Forged in Prison, was burnished in the years since he was released. He has become a cherished member of the AA community and a vital part of the recovery scene. He's a fine and trusted friend to many, and one of my favorite people in the fellowship. So, clear your schedule for the next hour or so, and enjoy this remarkable interview with my AA brother, Tom D. My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tom. I'm so glad you're here today. And uh, first of all, I, I want to congratulate you on an upcoming birthday. That's the 6th, is it, of January? That's correct. And it's 28, Eight. 28 years. Wow. Right. That's astounding. So did you ever think you'd live this long? And
1: not this long or not this long sober? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Both. Well, you, you know, you're you're one of my favorite people in the program and I see you on a regular basis. And before the pandemic, of course, we would see each other in meetings all the time. And since the pandemic, we've been in Zoom meetings together. And when you're going to meetings with people, you get to hear little bits and pieces about their lives and you have to fill everything else in. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast so that you can relate what it was like, what happened, but just as importantly, what it's like now and it has been since. You got sober. Just by the way, of a little bit of a historical perspective, can you start us out on like where you grew up and and what was life was like? A, a brief synopsis of when you started drinking.
1: Sure, uh, and, and thank you. So, I grew up in West U, Bel Air, mm-hmm. Bel Air for the most part. Yeah, my whole family. Drank and they drank normally, hmm. which I so I was uh, saw everybody, grandparents, aunts, uncles, people that visited drinking, what I would call cordially, you know, backyard barbecues when we went fishing or hunting mm-hmm. and stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, or like Thanksgiving, Christmas, wine, wine, all kids got wine yeah. at the table. Just as what well. we had a little glass of wine, mm-hmm. just as other people uh, as adults got a larger glass.
0: Uh huh. So. Did you notice anybody getting drunk? Uh, were there any people who got tipsy that you noticed? They,
1: we—I had one uncle that ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh-huh. and uh, I remember when what they told me, and I was probably like five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- they told me that Uncle Carol was sick, sick, and and he was—he was falling down and throwing up, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I just. And, and at that time, my def, you know my definition of sick was he fit what he was doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And 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 no one, um, I never could tell the difference in anybody else. They seemed to have. They seem to have a lot of fun when we're barbecuing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but I never noticed anybody. They didn't get. They didn't start talking poorly to each other, or did they start acting you know in a way that seemed uncivil?
2: Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm.
1: and I can remember getting sips. I kind of worked the you know worked the the, the course. You know, mm-hmm. I would go around the everybody had they had those little stands that stuck in the ground yeah. back then, and they have a mixed drink in it, and they usually had fruit in them, and they were they would let me get the fruit so I could get the slice of orange or the maraschino cherry out. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, I always got a sip, you know, and it was kind of scolded, but you know, they never, no one ever made it seem like it was a bad deal. And you get about 10, 10 sips of a, of, <laughs> of a mixture,
0: And you're a little kid.
1: <laughs> Right. Pretty soon you start, you know, sw- uh, swinging on the swings becomes more fun yeah, and all that stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah, little,
0: That's tough when you're a little kid. So the environment in which you grew up, kind of a middle class uh, environment.
1: Right. Yeah. So definitely uh, it was, um, you know, my my father was killed uh, in a car accident mm. when I was six. and My mother raised us for the rest of our, you know, a until we were adults and left home. Mm-hmm. My my mother raised us by our- Uh, So she worked at the uh, VA hospital. Uh She went back to work. Both of my parents were college educated. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, so after my my dad got killed, uh, she went back to work Hmm. and
0: took care of the four of us. Wow. So, four, are you the, where are you in the line of siblings?
1: I was the oldest. You were the oldest. I'm still the oldest. Still
0: the oldest, yeah. Do you, lots of people get to alcohol or drug use as a way to, escape from or treat whatever ills they suffered in their family of origin. What was that like for you in, in your family of origin? Was it was it peaceful? Was it chaotic? How, how did that look?
1: Two things were true for me, because yeah, now I do believe it's a family disease, mm-hmm. but, uh, so that I, I had a genetic predisposition mm-hmm. for alcoholism, and I didn't know that then. But I can remember before my dad died, before anything that seemed what I would have perceived as really traumatic had ever occurred. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can remember wanting to drink because my dad and my granddad were drinking beer. I wanted to have a beer because they were having a beer Mm -hmm. and and I was like five or something then. Mm. And my dad told me I could have a beer if I could take one of those old real thick, a beer mm-hmm. can and, and, and crunch it with my hand in the middle and then take the two <laughs> ends and fold it over. And he did it and showed me what to do. And I went straight to the kitchen and got one out of the trash can and kneeled on the can uh-huh. and then took all my weight, my five-year-old weight and folded the can over and took it in and presented it to him <laughs> and uh, said there, and, and he, he looked at it, he pitched it in the trash, drained the beer he was drinking and uh, told me to show him again. <laughs> so he knew that I, he knew I was uh, that I had crunched that can with my hand.
0: Oh man, what a rite! Yeah. What a right of passage that was. So did you ever get the beer after that?
1: Uh, that I felt like almost gave me permission mm. to drink. It mm-hmm. was just a matter of when. And of course, sure. uh, you know, we're we're about the same age. So there was a point in time when the cans got really easier to smash. I'll
0: bet. I'll
1: bet. <laughs> but, uh, and it wasn't until. Like I got sober this time that I actually tied in the fact that my dad's death when I was six years old
0: mm-hmm.
1: was was an event that I just tried not to feel that pain. Yeah,
0: I get that. So
1: I, I think that may
0: have been what you were um, aiming towards. Yeah, I was aiming towards, you know, what your first experience was. But when it, when it comes to the first experience of actually drinking based on your own decision to take a drink, when did that start?
1: So we were probably 12 ten mm-hmm. uh you know, there was this you know guys trying to be guys we were not old enough to get out and do anything on our own mm-hmm. and we started uh we would do odd jobs and sometimes people would you know think well you know they could pay us with beer and it was a cheaper way to pay us and we huh. would take beer of course it didn't take much and then we <clears throat> we drank too fast and we drank hot beer and we didn't know that it made a difference and all that stuff so, mm-hmm. and, and we were probably about 12 and mm-hmm. then we started sneaking in people's garages because they stored alcohol in the garages so Mm -hmm. we just we would go in there and purloin something from someone else was a fifth of whiskey or 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 whatever it might be Hmm.
0: did that initiate that initiated your drinking plus other behaviors
1: yes yeah Yeah. obviously i was stealing one (laughs) you know like uh, what anything my mother uh directed me to do Uh and um and then we started drinking and we was usually weekends. Mm-hmm. And we, I can remember we stole a, um, a, a fifth of whiskey because mm-hmm. my mother had a maid that came in and she's not really a part of our family, although mm-hmm. she did not live with us, but she took care of us when we came home from school, she got dinner uh, cooked and mm-hmm. uh, had the house uh, clean. Mm. I went in and took a fifth of whiskey and, it into another container and left a little bit in the bottle of the bottom mm-hmm. of the bottle and then broke the bottle on the floor and put a bunch of water with it. And, <laughs> and so there would be enough volume of water. And then I I went, Oh my God, you know, and, and she came in and, and I said, Oh, mom's going to kill me. And, and, the, and our maid's name was Vera and Vera says, don't worry about it, baby. I'll t- I'll tell her I did it, so you don't oh, get in trouble. And I thought, thank you. You know, we went right out that night, and, and <laughs> oh man, some guy that could was old enough to drive drove us around, and we got drunk riding around in Bel Air.
0: <laughs> wow. And you were you were how old? Oh, probably fourteen. Then. Four- fourteen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. you got to you got to learn about uh, uh, deception as a way to to get alcohol. Right. What, now what was it like when you, when you drank? Uh, w- were you sick? Did you get a hangover? Did, what was the feeling when you were that age and getting drunk?
1: Initially, I started like sneaking beer out of once I realized that the beer was always available somewhere mm-hmm. in somebody's garage, I sure. started sneak, sneaking a few beers and not drinking too much, I would right. realize that I could drink like two or three beers and mm-hmm. just get I, it changed the way I felt. Mm. And, uh, and I would be up late at night in the summer, uh, same about the same age, Mm -hmm. you know, 13, something I was old enough, not to, that my mother didn't make me go to bed when it wasn't school time, Uh but, uh, everybody else was, had to go to bed. So I was up by myself and TV had to go off like at midnight anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'd be up just watching something on TV, like Johnny Carson or
2: something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And then, um, then when we stole the whiskey. That was the first time we 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 drank. We didn't know that like the the difference in alcohol content or anything. We didn't know mm-hmm. how much stronger whiskey was in beer, mm-hmm. so we had no idea. We we drank that. Uh, there was uh, three of us, and we drank a fifth of whiskey.
2: Mm. We were
1: we were hammered. <laughs> we, we couldn't <laughs> stand up. We tried to get back in the house, holding on to each other stand stand. We could hold each other up and get falling down. Uh-huh. We got busted. Couldn't get in the house. I mean, I came. I walked in the house trying to walk a straight line. I'm just trying to get to my bedroom and I just veered off like one of those jets or <laughs> planes that's been shot and <laughs> cr- crashed over into the kitchen. My mother said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing. She says, have you been drinking? <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Oh, my God. And what'd you tell her? <laughs> I said, yeah. And you know she said, where'd you get it? And I told her <clears throat> that i that we tricked the maid and stole it from her. Like that was, you know, you, you have a tendency to confess when you're drunk.
0: Yeah, yeah. What were the consequences of that for you? I had to mow the lawn on Saturday mornings, and mm-hmm. it was a Friday
1: uh, evening that we did that, and, I, and she got me up at the, crack of dawn and told me how embarrassed she was and how mm-hmm. you know what you know this is you know this isn't the way she raised me and you know get out there you're gonna go mow the yard and i remember mowing the yard puking just i'd push the <laughs> lawnmower for four <laughs> or five feet and then i'd stop and hurl you
0: know, just retch and it was miserable but yeah. it,
1: you know, of course it didn't make me not want a, a drink uh, yeah. It, it, yeah yeah
0: yeah um, not a bad not a bad trade uh uh getting drunk for mowing the lawn even though you got you got pretty sick so you were 14 when that's going on and w- were you hanging with a particular group let's say in high school and and beyond that encouraged or supported or bolstered your drinking
1: it seemed as if everybody i knew so mm-hmm. we, we were we were a group of people and we skateboarded so we were surfing mm-hmm. and, and we would do you know just the dumbest stuff, just for, you know, entertainment. We didn't have, we didn't, we're, we weren't going anywhere particularly. We would just be somewhere like at the park or something like that. And then we'd start beating on each other.
0: Yeah. 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 when, when did drugs enter into the picture for you? Yeah.
1: around about, about that time, mm-hmm. you know, there was, we, we, there wasn't a diff, I, it was hard to
0: differentiate
1: the one thing, you know, that people started having marijuana was available. Mm-hmm. first you know and then and then and then it was anything else and then anything else that came became everything else without going deeply into it in a, in a mm. in an aa talk the the idea that it eventually became everything that was around eventually i tried yeah and some of those things took me over
0: yeah like what's your favorite drug what do you got <laughs> yes. exactly
1: right you know pill for every every parent's medicine chest if we looked at something that would either help them reduce their weight or it was something that helped them sleep at night or treat anxiety we'd read the directions on the bottom we say, oh, we want some of those
0: did you sense that you were starting to have a problem with it or or did you just go along and it didn't affect you too much i, I don't think
1: i saw it as a problem Hmm. I, I can remember my, my, you know, once it became evident to, to my mother that, you know, i they took, I remember going, they took me to some sort of a group counseling thing. I had, it, it, it was a number of years before I got ever even heard about a 12 step meeting.
2: Hmm. I, hmm. I mean,
1: it was uh, literally until I got sober the first time when mm-hmm. I was about 21, but I went to some counseling groups where mm-hmm. they talked, you know, like the Texas research of Institute of mental sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, had a group where we went there and talked and everybody went and got high afterwards <laughs> you know <laughs> but we had a kind of a we'd all have a kind of conversation we were they were it, it, it's similar to what aa is mm-hmm. except for that nobody was like committed to staying sober they mm-hmm. were just committed to coming in you know once a week and talking
0: at what point during your drinking and drug use did you start to notice that there were that that it was a problem uh, or what was your what was the trajectory of your life like between the social drinking in high school and the pilfering of people's medicine cabinets till you got to the point where it was becoming a problem
1: i, I suppose went i you know i started thinking that it would be easier to uh um, people would say you can do this and make more money so it became mm. like a money thing so we uh, started we would sell drugs or do things like that or Mm -hmm. take something that didn't belong to us and Mm -hmm. um everything that looked like you know somebody's not uh, keeping a close eye on their things particularly businesses and stuff like that Mm -hmm. were uh, initially stuff that we thought will take advantage of all the regular people and we thought stuff as regular people so we would take advantage of them and it could Mm -hmm. be as simple as um Sneaking into the movies, Mm -hmm. which was to save a few bucks like that, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, shoplifting at the Mm. local drugstore for nuisance kind of stuff, you know, inconsequential, smaller things. Um, Then it kind of just progressed and got worse and worse because that went along. Children learn from somebody a little older. So there's almost always somebody older a year or two that's giving you the good information.
0: Oh, (laughs) yeah. Right, yeah. Whether yeah. it's about
1: alcohol or whatever else you might do, girls or anything.
0: Yeah. Sure. So somebody you want to emulate, somebody you look up to. So whatever they're doing, uh, you do. Was the drinking and, and drug use, did that soften up your your morals? Or was the influence of drugs and alcohol in any way, in your mind, responsible for the other behavior, the stealing and the, that kind of thing?
1: I would say so. You know, to me, yes. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, one, I lowered my inhibition. So like, uh, I was I always felt like I was, I felt like I was a small guy yeah. and I felt like I was kind of like not, uh, able to take care of myself by myself. So, and, and, you know, and I learned you know, when I was little, I had, a, I mean, when I was little I had a rifle, you know, mm-hmm. so I already uh, had been gone hunting with my grandfather and my dad and everything before yeah. but I was able to hold, hold a rifle up and hold it out straight. Mm-hmm. So, and I think every boy in our family had a pocket knife, you know, mm-hmm. and we'd learned how to sharpen our pocket knife and it was a tool, you know, mm-hmm. so they cut string with, or will sure. a piece of wood or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but I started always, but I carried one. And then as time went on, I kept getting a bigger one. And then I would, you know, and if you're um, under the influence of alcohol or other things, and sometimes the idea that, you know, do you think you could pick on me because I'm, Skinny or small, or whatever right. it is, and I'll right. pull this out and prove to you otherwise. Which led to some incidents where, um, I ended up cutting a couple of people oh just to kind of get them get away, you know, and yeah, yeah. Pull, a, pull a knife on my uh, my mother had one boyfriend in my in her entire post my father's death life, right. And he was around for a few years, and I got he he, he got after me one day chasing me when I was about. 10 years old and had me hemmed up in a corner mm. um, one of my other little brothers younger brothers mm-hmm. came and pitched me my pocket knife and i remember opening it just kind of like a little bitty kid waving something in front of him he, he could have you know taken me down and taken away from me but he slowed down and stopped and i remember thinking i remember that you know you learn lessons the way you learn lessons i remember that he stopped and backed up mm-hmm. and i remember that knife is why he stopped wow. and why he didn't whip my ass and so i that's just like
0: I put that in a toolkit, yeah, that was your that was the lesson that made it okay later on to do that kind of stuff right. could you give me an idea what things were like from the time you got out of high school until the next major uh, milestone in your life?
1: so we were coming to the attention of the officials in high school, so uh-huh. I never completed high school they asked me to uh, in Bellar High school they asked me to move on down the road huh and that was directly related to you know uh some of it was truancy Mm -hmm. some of it was just being a rebel not wanting to put my shirt tail in and stuff Mm -hmm. like that they were not catching us under the influence although we were sitting out in the car uh, smoking marijuana and drinking stuff before we went to school Mm -hmm. um so they they moved me out of there and then i tried to go to lamar Mm -hmm. and um I had to wait a few months and get a, a, an extreme haircut. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went in there as the best I could look like I was going to church or something. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and the guy said, we really don't want your kind here. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I thought, I thought okay, this is a losing operation. So right. I didn't, um, that, and at that point I was, uh, you know, off and running, you know, the, I was big enough then at, um, 15 going on 16, you know that i just thought i was you know i am always been tall so i was like six foot five then
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and and you know and i just thought i was grown you know mm-hmm. and i started you know running around with guys that were a little older than me that didn't that were already you know out of their family homes so i wasn't not there yet yeah and it, i started running with an older group of people that did a lot of things. And I just, you know, those guys were sort of, I don't want to say heroes to me, but they were role models for sure. Sure, They were guys that had fast cars and they were selling drugs and, you know, they were, and I would see them hurt people, but I thought, well, then people were scared of them. And I thought that works, you know? And so there, they learn a lot of lessons that aren't particularly beneficial to being a productive human being trying to, you know,
0: in emulating them or looking up to them did did you start to engage in that behavior yourself hurting people and making them scared of you and that kind of thing
1: right that's true i did it it didn't feel like it really until um i I feel like that whatever i was doing that once i got addicted then i became you know one was i was addicted you know i mean i would switch like i would Mm -hmm. stop stop using heroin and then i would I would be back to drinking. You know. Mm-hmm. I always drank with it. So yeah. whether I was doing whatever I did, alcohol and then marijuana were kind of a backstop. They were always kind of a piece of the puzzle. Uh-huh. And, but if I would go into withdrawal, say this is doing, it's going too bad, I would increase my drinking. So I would have mm-hmm. like a, f- a fifth. And I would tell myself, um, they like tequila was like a drug. So that's what I told myself. So mm-hmm. would, and So I didn't feel like, I didn't think, uh, I, I didn't feel very favorably towards people that were alcoholic, but I didn't have a problem with heroin addicts. Um, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's curious, <laughs> but you know, and so I would, so I would convince myself that tequila was really like a drug. It wasn't like I was drinking alcohol, and I'd have a fifth of it. I'd sometimes I'd have to wake up in the middle of the night and get a, get a, a couple of sips to get sleep through the night.
0: You know? Isn't that interesting? You know, a lot of a lot of times when we're talking about drug usage, because, yeah, I was co-addicted as well, but we always, in linking it with alcohol, say I use drugs alcoholically. And what you're talking about is using alcohol. (laughs) Like a drug. Like a drug. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) where did that heroin uh, use kick in and where did that take you?
1: Well, it's a monster. You know, there's no, Mm -hmm. uh, there's no upside to it. And I had, um, Some of the older guys, I'd learned, I mean, I was definitely afraid of needles when I was Mm. a kid. But I became, you know, once you start doing it and you say that's a faster way to get whatever you're trying to do done, Uh I became an IV drug user. And that, you know, and I stayed away from heroin for a couple of years doing uh, stimulants and stuff like that because I thought, well, you know, enjoy life, stay awake. And then everything turns against you, as they say you know yeah. the reason we drew drugs and alcohol is cuz they feel good initially right. they work every mm-hmm. the alcohol worked or would never drank it again and the same is true for all the other poisons and yeah. and uh, they 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 have an initial effect that's uh, you know that works and you go wow that's you know, you know. and then it and then it turns against you even the most benign in my case you know marijuana became one of those things it was the last thing that once i quit using heroin and alcohol. I hadn't even considered stopping weed necessarily because I just didn't think it was, it just seemed innocuous, huh. you know, to me. And then I re- remember uh, uh, a counselor in the program I was in a- asked me, somebody w- went up there and they said, hey, those guys are smoking weed <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the living quarters. And he came and said, are you smoking weed And uh, over there? And I said, that's a personal question. He said, not a personal question. Tom I said, say, yes or no question.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm.
1: are you smoking weed over there? And I said, yeah, but who told on me? And he said, well, you're, you snitched on yourself by, you know, what you're doing in front of other mm-hmm. people. And, and he asked me that at that time, you know, I had not ever really considered you know, like it was that kind of like you would think it would be like a real aha moment. You would know all that stuff. I mean, because sure. I had been sober before at that time, the last time when I got sober in 93. But I was just not uh, looking at it that way. I was thinking heroin and alcohol are kicking my ass. Cocaine, I know, will kick my ass. Methamphetamine will kick my ass. But weed, I saw it was not, not that bad of a deal,
0: you know. So you, you turned to marijuana to kick the drugs and alcohol at the time?
1: Well, I was using it the last thing because it was just yeah. around. I mean, more, more I, I didn't go hunting for it particularly uh-huh. at that time. It was just happened to be somebody had some, and, and so it was, I, I, I'd say okay because I didn't have a defense against saying okay to that, huh. You know, and yeah. you know, I think it had always been a piece of the puzzle, but it hadn't, sure. been, it hadn't been one of those um, things where that I would go to extreme lengths necessarily. Uh-huh. There's a whole yeah. lot of stuff, you stuff that you recognize later. Because yeah. THC's uh, uh, the the way it's stored in your system, yeah. its half life doesn't allow for you to really experience if you're like really consume a lot of THC and then you don't consume any, you don't yeah. really notice the effects of the decline of the THC because it dissipates at such a slow rate. So it's mm-hmm. and I and I could look back in time and see where when there'd be a. Uh, you're old enough there used to be droughts in the summer oh, yeah. you know, we, and, and then once so or when there would be a, a week or two where you couldn't get any by the time you a week or two had gone by you were willing to go to any bad part of town and go yeah. get somebody let somebody sell you something that wasn't even a close facsimile but yeah. just because you wanted some whereas yeah. at, at, at day one or two or three that that craving wasn't that strong it took a while for the for the tac to dissipate completely yeah from a person that smoked on a regular basis was, wow. I, I never knew that though back then can,
0: can you give me kind of a, a, a timeline between when all this was happening and whenever the disease and or consequences finally caught up with you
1: sure I ended up uh, I'd I robbed a uh, a drug connection and got mm. kidnapped by them they picked me up going to go rob somebody else you know I was mm. just doing it real Kind of base street kind of crime. And how old
0: were you at that time? How old were you when that happened? Twenty
1: one. Well, actually, I was probably twenty. So they and, sure. and so they these guys scooped me up, held me for hostage. And by that time, my mama, my grandmama, and all them were they would not come put any more money on the table for me. Oh. And so uh, I was out, and they were holding me in a, an apartment complex in Southeast Houston, and they would beat me up some and were Mm -hmm. uh, threatening to shoot me and all this stuff and i was calling around trying to find somebody that would you know pay the the money that was owed a few hundred bucks Mm -hmm. that i'd cost those guys and Mm -hmm. um the this guy that i went to high school with that was a a starting quarterback on our high school football team valedictorian Mm -hmm. most popular guy but he was also a guy that drank and used and i ran around with him regularly Uh on a daily basis um since we were in fifth or sixth grade and Mm -hmm. he he came and bailed me out but he said don't ever call me again and he took me to ben todd's emergency room and and dropped me off that night and Mm -hmm. uh they kept me there and ended up giving me something that was kind of like a psychiatric medication or something Mm -hmm. that made me Mm -hmm. feel real goofy but i was still uh, in withdrawal from drugs from Mm out from opiates and uh I went back to the place I was living with, a couple of scuzzy guys, and um, I realized something had to happen, so I called my grandmother, mm-hmm. and my grandmother, who wouldn't come up for the money, didn't mind, you know, trying to, and I told her, I got to do something, right. I don't know what to do, she said, well, they have these meetings at the church, and I'm hmm. going, and I thought, oh, man, the church, they're trying to you know, convert me back to you know going to church, and I didn't want yeah. to do that. But I thought, uh-huh. well, I didn't, I, I didn't have any solution other than that. So I went,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I had a friend of mine who you know drove. Mm-hmm. That actually, she came and got her mama's car, and mm-hmm. <laughs> came and picked mm-hmm. me up, and took me to my grandmama's house.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When they carried me over there, and uh, this uh, two people from the church came. It was a priest and a recover and, and, uh, and a guy that's recovering uh, alcoholic uh, mm-hmm. and addict. And, he, mm-hmm. and he, they came in and the, the guy that was, a, you know, a member of the program came in uh-huh. and talked to me and the preacher went in there and talked to my grandmother. And I, um, as they say, you know, the therapeutic value of one alcoholic working with another
2: mm-hmm. and what
1: he did in, in, the, in the hour or so that we spent together he mm-hmm. convinced me that he understood what I was going through and I had never, wow. I had never sat down with him and that there was a solution. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, and I, and I did never, and I didn't really believe that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hearing about it anywhere. And he told me, if you're interested, we have a meeting at the church tonight. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I came, I went, that was, and I got that time. I, um, I, I got, I got sober and stayed sober for about a year and a half. And I, uh, I relapsed through a series of just getting overwhelmed with being an adult. Yeah, I I say that in hindsight. At the time, if I would have known it, if somebody says, "Well, you're you're fixing to get married to this woman, you're going to do it in the church, Uh you're you're holding down a job, you're paying your bills and everything," right? And uh, people look at you as being a responsible member of this uh, sober community. That pressure was was a real but unacknowledged factor
0: yeah that's interesting i i was just going to interject that uh, now this is happening in the early 70s yeah right okay Exactly. so what what was your program like for that year and a half
1: i went to a meeting every day so a, a 12-step recovery meeting i was working at a treatment facility mm-hmm. with uh, people that were younger than me but i always went to meetings with people that were i went to also to meetings where older people went went mm-hmm. to some like Alder Street Men's Alder Group, Street. yeah, sure. man, and I felt like we were in high church or something over there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, These yeah, guys, and it was kind
1: of everybody was real kind of serious, and the the other meetings were a little less. But we went to some down on the waterfront and stuff uh-huh. like that that were sure, yeah. Uh-huh. But I got tired of um, you know what happened was you know because my sponsor would tell me. You know, when you get a craving, I get a craving every now and then, and he'd say, "He says just give me a call, and we'll say, I'll, you know, come on over. Yeah. We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll talk about it." He says, "They'll it'll start getting less and less."
2: You know, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. almost like
1: with the big book and Doctor Bob thing. It was, it, sure. I, and I didn't really quite understand because part of it I was internalizing, and as a young person, I just I wanted to be seen as an adult and not some scared kid. I yeah. always there's like I think there's a piece of maybe all of us that just doesn't want to be seen as a scared kid. Yeah. And where we experience some portion of our life is being that frightened individual.
0: Yeah. And
1: yeah. right? And uh-huh. so when uh the third or fourth time it happened, I I thought I'm not going to call that guy. This is I'm just showing weakness and I don't want to be perceived as weak. Yeah. Yeah. And I now know, you know, in hindsight is that I made a deal with the disease. It was like it wrapped a warm blanket around me and said Hang on, buddy. Yeah. We're coming to get you. You know, we got yeah. you. Don't okay. worry about it. You don't need to call yeah. that sponsor. We got you. You know, and I left from wow. a, a, a meeting where I was talking to uh, parents of students, teaching them drug education and talking to the PTA and left uh-huh. from that meeting and called this girl that I'd met, you know, in, a, in a kind of a random way the universe unfolded. I was buying a concert ticket mm-hmm. at, uh, at a place, and I sure. ran into this girl I knew that was a cheerleader that I used to date. She mm-hmm. was working at this place, and I could tell that she was high. And I kind of just mm. logged it in my brain. Because I didn't really have a place to go back to where people were that I knew were using. And I saw her, and I thought, uh-huh. I'll remember that. And I went and told wow. her this elaborate lie later. She told me, she says, I didn't really believe you, but I didn't care. You wanted to buy heroin. I, I was willing to get you some. <laughs> you know, I, I had a really complicated story that's not, you know, but it was like, because I just thought she was going to, because I felt convicted.
0: So you leave, you leave the good side of town to go over to the bad side of town. You, you leave service to others to uh, to become service to yourself. That's uh that's quite a that's quite a downward uh downward roll isn't yeah, it Yeah and
1: you know what's curious is is that I told myself so because of what the book says jails institutions are death so I was to take some of that stuff like real literal so yeah. I said so I so I'd been a, a night or two in jail and I've I've been right. in a mental institution I've been up on the 14th floor of a place that was like a that, where mm-hmm. they were keeping me separated from drugs and, and myself, and and so I thought, well, death's the only other thing. Mm-hmm. So I bought enough heroin right. to kill myself with, and and then I went and to back to this apartment where hmm. I stayed with uh, uh, other people in the program. They were at there playing, they were playing bridge in the living room, and I just walked by and said, man, I got the flu or something. I'm going to my room, and I went in there and. Never even tried to do enough to kill myself. I did just enough to see how good it was. And then I did a little bit more and a little hmm. bit more until it was all gone two or three days later. And I called my sponsor and confessed. And he said, he said, I knew it the other day when you called and told me you were sick and you couldn't come to work. <laughs> you know, I could hear it in your voice. He says, he says, are you done? Oh, my. And I said, yeah. Yeah, I am. Huh. You know, and he said, well, and they were so kind to me. There, nobody shamed me, blamed me. They said, we'll take some mm-hmm. of the weight off of you. you. know, We'll give you more time to go to more meetings for yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. my pride and ego could not take being the guy that only had one day. When somebody, when somebody else that had 30 days, hmm. uh, now I had to see and perceive as someone that had, you know, that was doing better than me or whatever. And I, and I viewed it that way, unfortunately.
0: So coming back after a relapse was an admission of failure as opposed to right. a cry for help.
1: And and I stayed, and I stayed until I got another paycheck. Ego wow. and pride, man, just, just huge. Just, and I didn't know it then. I, I didn't identify it as that. I just thought, I thought, man, yeah. I'm out of here. From that time, when I relapsed the next time, it was not a a month. Within a month, I was sitting in jail going to prison. I I mean, literally.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that, about the the jail to prison uh, experience. Well, that
1: time, uh, my my brother, who's now deceased from alcoholism, and I robbed a Mm drugstore. And we got caught almost immediately. And uh, and we went to jail and then we both ended up going to prison and mm-hmm. um, went down, did a couple of years, got out and went down there resentful and mad, mm-hmm. never went to AA, never even tried to, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, there was some people from recovery that stayed in touch with me and one of the guys you probably knew greg lovelidge yeah so greg who's now deceased uh, yeah liver disease but he had 40 something years when he died and and uh, he and greg had always stayed in touch with me Uh he he uh, he is one of the guys i I had lived with back then Hmm. and um so Uh so i'd get out and i'd go by to see what they're doing in recovery and 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 you always feel like an outsider if you're not in and i i got this idea that um you know, the world was against me or something. You know, I had adopted a mentality of saying I was going to just go this, I'm going to be this best Mm -hmm. other bad person or something. And I invested in that, unfortunately, for way too long.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audio book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of The Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to The Big Book anytime, place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of The Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. You went to jail and then to prison for the robbing of the drugstore. How long were you in prison that time before you got out?
1: Three and a half years that
0: time, first time. So you, so you get out of prison, you go right back to what you were doing, and even more so? Uh...
1: So I went, I went to prison, three and a half years, got out. So my, my brother got out about a month later. We were out three months, got busted again. He got shot and didn't die. Another guy in the robbery did die. And we got convicted, went back to prison, mm-hmm. um, stayed uh, six years that time, and got out. Um, came right back out and did almost mm-hmm. the exact same time. You know, so it was three months, then six months, then nine months. And it was each time I went right back to almost identical. It's like not not much different. And in prison, I was just learning more stuff about yeah. nothing that was particularly productive. I did go to some college, but I wasn't going with any kind of a you know kind of a, a, a approach towards doing anything. Right. And then um, the the last time after I'd stayed out nine months, I ended up I got a life sentence for for and each each time it was for uh, robbery. So it was like robbery, robbery, robbery.
0: So by the time you're you're convicted the third time, that's where that sentence came from, that life sentence? Right. That's correct. How did you how did you feel when when that went down for you? Uh I'm just curious. I've never known anybody who's been in prison for a life sentence before. That's why I was asking.
1: Yeah, so it so initially it, 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 all the air goes out of the balloon, but you but you have by that time you're used to the way the system works and you realize that's what you're facing. So you realize it's a possibility. And, mm-hmm. and then you, uh, and so it's, uh, I remember right before, um, I, I thought I'd got away with a bunch of stuff that had, I got caught, I would have already been back. And I, and, mm-hmm. and this friend of mine was gonna, um, was going through a financial difficulty as a guy I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like a brother to us And, uh, his family was like my second family there in Mm Bel Air and and he was going through some hard times and I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And then I, I heard him out. Um, he had, um, he'd gone out and his car wouldn't start. And I heard him, you know, um, uh, cussing and moaning. he came back in and was looking for a gun. He said he wanted to go sell it and his wife uh, who I'd seen the gun and the bullets the night yeah. before. And, and, uh, when he was looking for it, I says, give him the gun. You know, and yeah. she said, no, he's might kill himself. She, he's, I think he's, you know, she's and I thought, hey, he's going to kill himself. And she says, you don't know. You haven't been around Tom. And I, I thought, well, give me the bullets and then give him the gun. If he's, you know, he'll, yeah. he'll go sell the gun. He's going to sell the gun. He doesn't have to sell the bullets with it.
0: Right.
1: And, and um, So she gave him the gun, and and then he went back out in the car, and I could hear him beating on the steering wheel, you know, and and, uh, crying. Uh So I went out there and said, "What's up?" And he he started telling me how he, you know, he everything he was presenting to me up there was a a fraud. That that Mm. he he was in debt in four or five different kinds of ways and was stuck out. Yeah. And I told him, you know, that um, nothing's worth that. I says, you know, I says the worst that can happen to me is I get a life sentence for going doing a robbery, and Hmm. uh, which was you know, eventually what happened, you know, wow. but I, but I was, it would have, see, and I don't want to make it sound like it's him because I would have right. ended up, I would have, I wasn't on any path to doing something better.
0: I was just kind of in a holding pattern. So you got, how old were you when you got the life sentence? 36,
1: 37. 30,
0: okay. So 36, 37. And how, how long did you, or, or how long did you serve uh, before you, were paroled?
1: I did uh, 20 calendar years to m- become eligible and then I made my first eligibility for parole. Huh.
0: So what was, so you weren't sober yet when you went in for the life sentence. Uh, how did, how did AA or recovery materialize for you in prison?
1: So when I, uh, I got busted, I got busted in Austin and, um, which I'd been Kind of, I don't want to say living there because, but I was, you know, Mm -hmm. but I was, I was staying there, and I knew a bunch of people that the people, a lot of people I knew from Houston and particularly from Bel Air that are musicians had had all moved up there, so I knew a bunch of people in the area. So I come into the jail, and the jail, there's a guy who you I probably met, Kern. So yeah. Kern was the counselor for the drug program there, I did not know him then. Didn't uh-huh. even know because he was in Austin. I didn't know he was even that he was uh, he was had been raised in Houston, uh-huh. and he was running this drug treatment program. And they had all these guys like uh, Stevie Ray's band and all these yeah. other musicians that were uh-huh. coming into the jail there. They were all s- sober. And I thought. Yeah. Sober looked kind of cool. Then with uh-huh. these guys, these rock and roll guys that have, you know, more uh-huh. money, and more money than I thought was, you know, <laughs> in, you, anybody could ever, you know, spend. They were up there doing volunteer work in, hmm. in the county jail, bringing meetings uh, in there to, uh, uh, to the county jail, in Travis County. And mm-hmm. uh, so I started going to meetings. You know, part of it was just something to do. Part of it was, you know, but then I saw these guys and I thought they all seemed sincere and pretty solid people. But mm-hmm. but I wasn't done yet. But I but I got like a year sober, almost telling the truth, almost working the program, <laughs> almost. It
0: was part time AA, right? <laughs> well, it was you know, I mean, it was it was like I,
1: you know, I was still thinking about escaping would be better than going to prison for life. You know, and there's yeah. a lot of stuff I was still like you know, kind of thought it was entertaining the idea. Of.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, then when I got the life sentence, which which I fairly well was certain I would get a bunch of time, if not that much. Yeah. Uh, But something like that, I would still hold on to a handcuff key, you know, with the the possibility of, you know, trying to, you know, like go South if I could. Sure. When I got the license, I remember it's just like all the wind went out of my sails. Yeah. And, uh, the lawyer that I was that represented me was a guy I grew up with. Again, he was mm-hmm. right there. He was a surfer, rock and mm-hmm. roll music guy that, sure. that was from our part of town. And mm-hmm. and and, uh, and I had been sober a year. And he said, "What do you want me to bring you?" And I thought, "Well, just bring me some narcotics, you know." <sighs> and and he did. You know, I mean, huh. he brought you know he just brought him up there to the jail, and and, mm-hmm. uh, and I got loaded for a couple of days. And I thought, "Well, I got to get straight." And I got straight, trying to work on my appeal for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up, by the time I got back to prison, uh, I went back to the same unit I'd been to a couple of times before because Mm -hmm. of a a prior escape uh, uh, that I had on my record. I went to a Mm -hmm. a unit called Ellis where Death Row was. And um, as soon as I walked in, you know, I mean, guys were walking up to me in the hallway going, don't worry about anything. You know, we got we got a fan for you. We got a radio. One guy walked up and handed me a a marijuana cigarette
2: Wow!
1: and a a quick handshake at the right in front of the like I'm I'm sitting outside the major's office waiting to get a cell assignment. (laughs) And somebody walked up and says, here, man, you know, it's good to have you back. You know, I Uh I mean, I, I, you know, prison had had become home. I was home. You know, I got back to my spot, but I didn't I didn't um, use anything for a little while. You know, and I went to some. They had AA meetings in the chapel, and I went down there. And then I realized that you know uh, there was a, a lot of I could do something different in there, and it wasn't do was some get sober. I started uh, smuggling drugs in and you know mm-hmm. drinking, and we drank and smoked pretty much every day. So that was. Uh, I got arrested in eighty seven, and I got to the actual facility probably in late eighty eight, early eighty nine, and mm-hmm. then so and then. By the end of 92, I had, you know, run the wheels off of it. We were, Hmm. we were being addicted in prison and drinking all the time. And, you know, we just. It's amazing. And there was, Ann Richards was the the governor Uh and they had started a recovery dormitory. Mm -hmm. And the recovery dormitory gave us an opportunity to have, you know, kind of a peer support Mm-hmm. God, what an AA mean, gives you so yeah. and then and then we had AA some really good people that mm-hmm. are still active in Houston Rito and Chuck mm-hmm. and a bunch of yeah. those guys that are still do volunteer work oh yeah were're coming in and uh, doing vol- bringing meetings there to the
0: facility this was the Ellis unit you're talking about
1: right and so they were they were bringing meetings to the facility and they came every week, and mm-hmm. we were in a, like a treatment program, like where mm-hmm. they actually, we went to stuff where we started processing things. And I started mm-hmm. looking at the things that had been blockages from the past. And I got to the point where in there, I became like a different person. I started being able, I'd, I had credibility as a, an inmate, convict, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them. Sure. And so I had credibility. I'd, I'd built a world that I lived in were I had the respect of people there because I'd come and gone so many times and and what I did in there and the way I lived as an inmate though per, not as a convict and so um then I started changing that if something happened you know like uh, the actual compulsion was re- was removed you know I did what I didn't believe would work I got on my knees and prayed to a god I didn't necessarily believe in you know I, I got a, I got a big book I got a sponsor I started working the steps. I started going mm-hmm. to meetings, started turning down things I used to say yes to. I quit stealing. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a we- I got rid of any weapons I had. So I, I, I never, you know, I've never used a weapon since then. You yeah. know, never, never had one and was thinking about using one. I've only been in two fist fights and one was uh, both of them. I made an amends immediately afterwards. And neither one of them wow. was very long. It was a couple of, you know, quick, like em- emotional punches
0: you know so was that behavior that come out of one burning bush experience or one turning point or moment of clarity for you or or was that a a gradual coming to the truth
1: um once the compulsion was removed so once again i mean i I can i I remember talking to my sponsor there was like a point like maybe three months in i
2: don't
1: remember exact date but there was an event that was emotional enough that in the past i guaranteedly would have um would have I would have at least been overwhelmed with wanting to use
2: mm-hmm. or drink
1: if I hadn't have gone ahead and acted on it. I would have had that, you know, and it didn't happen that way. I remember wow. uh, saying that to, to him and he said, we're going to start, we're going to bear down on your character defects. The amends was a piece of it, but it was that continuing, you know, we say that our, you know, that we ask for God to remove our character defects, but everybody that's been sober a while knows that, that not exactly how that
0: works. You know, yeah, you, yeah. You,
1: it works that you that you ask God to remove them. It doesn't necessarily mean that, <laughs> yeah. that they're all necessarily all gone.
0: Yeah, it's in the asking. Now, was this the man who was working with you, was he your sponsor? And was he an inmate there with you?
1: That's right. Is it different of a duck as a guy? And I remember asking the counselor there, I said, well, who do I, you know, what am I looking for in a sponsor? And he says, somebody that's got something that you want. Hmm. And I wanted long-term hmm. sobriety. Hmm. And this guy had come back to jail without relapsing. So he was he had like 12 years sober. He had some other behavior that he, you know, that he alleged he didn't do. But, but he was a, had been a, an officer, you know, in an Army Rangers. He was raised in some rural Oklahoma town. He, so he was like a small town guy. He wasn't a dope thing guy. He wasn't mm-hmm. a criminal or nothing. But I would see that he was active in the group. He was participated in the group. Mm-hmm. He was there all the time. He, uh, he knew the book. You know, mm-hmm. and he he didn't seem uh, disingenuous. He said yeah. he was like like he was maybe living it to me as best yeah. he could. He would be willing to be wrong and uh, eat pro yeah. and stuff like that. And I I thought yeah, you know, so
0: that's pretty cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now I I just was wondering as you were saying all that, how did you reconcile the the hopefulness of getting sober and having the compulsion to use and drink uh, removed? How did you reconcile that with the hopelessness of a life sentence in prison?
1: So I thought, well, you know, at some point I, I accepted the fact that I, I might not ever get out of prison. I mm. thought, well, I've created this world. Mm. But I didn't like the human being that I was.
2: Mm-hmm. I, didn't
1: like, I didn't like living in the skin and doing things the way I'd been doing them.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, so what the program gave me was an opportunity in there. And there were some other people that also gave me permission to be able to do something different. So I uh-huh. started looking at practicing the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous uh-huh. in all my affairs in prison. Wow. So I would start, there was a bunch of stuff that we did. You know what wow. I mean? Like uh, for me, as time went on in there, if somebody stole something, then what you would do is you would, you would, they usually would beat them up Right. And and so I was had acquired a path of nonviolence, and so I thought, I mm. don't endorse stealing from uh, other people in my living area. And there was a thief, and they were trying mm-hmm. to find out who it was and catch him and beat him off the tank. Mm-hmm. So I put a sign up that said, "Can we come together in nonviolence and pray mm-hmm. for this individual? You know, for a for a nonviolent uh, uh, outcome in this mm-hmm. situation and." A bunch of guys signed their name that they would join me at a particular time of day to, you know, mm-hmm. pr- pray about that particular outcome, and mm-hmm. the stealing stopped for a few months. It wasn't hmm. forever, but the thing was, it made a difference. And then uh, I remember on. Um, 9.999, the threat of Y2K was coming in at right. that particular time. 9.999 was going to be the first indication that the computer systems were going to fail because
0: all the, everything was right. going to be nines. Right. Nine. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Right? And, yeah.
1: And so everybody, people that were very spiritual and all this other stuff were mm-hmm. freaking out. They, they everybody were. thought, well, the system's going to fail and we won't be able to get our commissary from commissary. And I, and it really affected me in a, a way that strongly. And I thought, man, maybe we can do something about that. And so I got the idea that we could just, I could give away soup, the little ramen noodle soups that cost mm-hmm. a quarter. Mm-hmm. But in, in prison, a 25-cent a, a soup... Is uh, can be a meal if the food's really bad and you've got to eat mm. something on your own. If you don't have mm. that, then you're really hungry. It fills up the space. Yeah. And so I got a bunch of soups and mm-hmm. uh, found another fella that would mm. give them away. And I put it made a, a sign and started. I said soups for free and started wow. giving away soup. And I did it. Uh, and my objective then was to start uh, to go from nine nine or the there right. closely thereafter until my sobriety date on january the 6th and then see how that went so i made a commitment to do it that however three or four months and then we did it i did it about two years every day and and initially people go this won't work you cannot give with this in prison they have a uh, inmates have their own little stores where they sell stuff for 50 Uh percent interest and they said you can't do this you're People are going to take advantage of, you know, said, well, if they do, that's their karma. Wow. I'm a, I'm going to give it away and we'll see. And so people would come, a a couple of guys came and just got soups when they didn't need them to Uh prove to me that people would take advantage of me. Uh And, and I gave them the soups anyway. Uh And then when they went to the commissary, they brought soups back and in an excess of what they had borrowed, you know, because they weren't borrowing them. I was giving them. They, so they brought, they said, I don't know what you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to put some money into this deal because I don't know. We've never seen anybody do this before.
0: <laughs> so it was it was a commitment to helping others that helped you keep your commitment to yourself of staying sober. Is that right? Is that a reasonable way to put it? Yeah. So obviously right now I'm not talking to you in prison. So somewhere along the way, while you were sober, you got out of prison. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? And then what happened in Alcoholics Anonymous for you around that time?
1: Um, so I became eligible in uh, uh, 2007 mm-hmm. and so after 20 calendar years. And mm-hmm. I, I, long story short, um, I, I I made my first parole, which is mm-hmm. unusual. I found out about it uh, I was curious, the day that my dad got killed mm-hmm. uh fifty years earlier, I, I, I got informed that I'd made parole. I, I was released
0: That's amazing.
1: Um the Friday before Mother's Day oh. in two
0: thousand
1: and eight. Wow. And uh and when I came home,
2: uh-huh.
1: John Gordon, God bless his soul, who's yeah. not any longer with us, but had long term yeah. sobriety. He
0: Good man. He, yeah.
1: He and Steve M., mm-hmm. uh, Russell L., mm-hmm. and uh, all uh, came and brought a meeting uh, to, to the house. Got, for three or four days, I had a monitor. Well, it was three or four days that I had a monitor, but until so mm-hmm. I could get in and get some travel uh, permits and stuff like that, I, they, they came and brought meetings to me. And they really didn't know me. They were friends of Greg's,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and they, uh, and Greg was living in Austin around, right. around Rock at that time. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and so he called them and they, they came and brought meetings to me, you know, and of wow. course now I, you know, as, as, as you would know, I became, you know, friends with all of those guys.
0: Yeah. And you later on would be the guy who was doing that for others. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember you saying something that stuck with me since then about the odds of you getting parole—how slim they were—and then you drew on what you had been doing in AA and, and, and credited that with being a big reason why that miracle happened.
1: Right, the percentages were one in ten.
0: Huh?
1: It was a eleven percent chance, based on their system. And mm. the guy that interviewed me actually told me, he "says, man, you know you." gone to college, you've got a degree now, you go mm-hmm. to AA all the time, you do volunteer work, you're doing all this stuff, you know, and he said, um, on paper, you look good. He says, you but your criminal history is terrible.
2: Mm. <laughs> so,
1: uh, despite what you're doing right now, and he says, oh, yeah, you, know, you know, you don't have any tattoos, uh, you know, you, you speak as if you're well-educated,
2: Right. <laughs> you know,
1: so um, he, he said, normally, uh, but he said, and he told me, he says, you won't make parole. And I said, I, you know, I said, I might not make parole. But according to your system, uh, there's a I have a one in 10 chance. And I says, that's one square on a shotgun pool, <laughs> a football, <laughs> a football pool, you know, and I've won with one square. And I haven't had a square on the pool on the pool for 20 years. So, you wow. know, I'm going to take my, my little, you know, what I got. And, uh-huh. and the truth was, I knew that if I didn't make parole, which I didn't actually expect to make parole.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. You know,
1: uh, I could be there for the rest of my time. I had some peace of mind and serenity that said I can be there doing the work. Wow! I can be there doing the work, and there was work. There's always work. To, there's always work to do there.
0: So, so you were in your mid mid fifties when you were released, right? So, and I know the men you're talking about, and they're they're just especially John. John was a very close friend of mine, and you and I both sat. By his bedside when he was dying, and uh, of of liver, of liver disease, and uh, he was just a, a a beautiful man. I came to know you, I guess, shortly after you got out of prison. I never would have known from your demeanor or anything about it that you had been to prison until it came up, and then it was like what? So there was something about you in the early days of seeing you over the delta. That made me think. Wow, I, I, I found it hard to believe that you'd been in prison because you were well spoken and you were well versed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: You know, I've, always, I've kept studying. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I and I practicing. I think it's like, part of it's studying because there's uh-huh. I, I love the literature, and yeah. when they come out with the, the last book that they came up with, all Bill's um, the talks were or yeah. yeah. Are, yeah. are phenomenally informative. Yeah.
0: Our Great Responsibility. It's, yeah. a, it,
1: it's, a, it's, yeah. it's, it's just like full of just great stuff.
0: Yeah, it was his talks at the uh, at the various conventions starting in 1955. And uh, if for anybody who hasn't seen that book, it's, it's very informative and it kind of gives you a little bit different perspective because he, he wrote a book about the business. Well, they he didn't write the book, but all of his speeches and everything are in that book uh, that talked about the business end and the formation of the traditions and everything else and the difficulties they had in the early days. So yeah, I would highly recommend that that book as well. So you're out of prison. You're going to AA all the time. The years are passing by. You had been sober. How long when you got out of prison? That would have been...
1: Uh, so, so, ooh,
0: 14 uh, years?
1: Yeah, 14, 15.
0: Okay. So in, in the intervening years between release from prison and... Let's say very recently, were there were there times in your life that tried your tried your serenity or tried your uh, commitment to AA? And could you speak to maybe a few times when AA was there for you to to help you through?
1: Oh, I could say one of my. I, when, when my mom died, when my brother died. I, I, you mm-hmm. know, so both my baby brothers have died from alcoholism. Both of oh. them had been in the program to a degree and oh. had, 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 had gone back out. And so that my, my mother, you know, I mean, and people, man, the church was not only full of people that, you know, that were uh, close to my mother, but there were so many people that came from uh, my home group, you know, when they had the, uh, when they had the funeral. That Mm -hmm. it was, and it was uh, an amazing. And they handled everything. The girls, Mm -hmm. the women came to me and says, "Just get out of the way," you know. Mm -hmm. And they took over, you know, uh, you know, preparing, you know, for the stuff afterwards and everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mm -hmm. it was uh, an amazing experience. Um, I I think, you know, John is the one that got me to go back into uh, the recovery field. You know, John. John was actually. Uh, yeah. We you know we went to eat. He he already had his diagnosis with can with cancer, and and he had told me he says, "Have you ever thought about going back into the field?" And I said, "No, nah, too much pain and suffering.
2: <laughs>
1: get enough get enough of that. Just doing volunteer work."
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and he's and he told me you ought to consider it. Yeah. And and then he you know, and then what I've learned in the program and I've, I've used this all the time is that, you know, my first thoughts is often not right. Right. And um, so and what I did is I called my sponsor. What yeah. I did was is you know I, I, I knew that John believed he said, you'd be good at it. You ought to, you ought to really give it some consideration. And uh-huh. then the fact that he had reiterated that before we left, he said at the beginning and then he didn't push it. He has, He was intelligent enough, know not to push it. And then he just said, "You ought to, you know, make this phone call and see." Huh. And and then I thought, well, who am I to say no? Because I don't know, you know. <laughs> and I was looking for. I was looking for something. Uh, another. I was looking for something else to do right then. Right. And so I I, I made a call and I talked to my uh, girlfriend and I and everybody said, "I don't know why you're not doing it." And so hmm. I thought, well, you know, they're not going to let me. The state of Texas, I'll, I'll prove to y'all, y'all are wrong. And,
2: huh.
0: <laughs> and then the state
1: of Texas said
2: yes.
0: So, <laughs> so anyway, that, so I've
1: been doing that for a decade or so now. Boy, talk about
0: coming! Talk about coming full circle, Tom. That is, that's that's really amazing. I've I've seen you go through the things with your mother and and the tragedies of your of your of your brothers over that period of time and. What I know about you is that you are, even before you landed in the the recovery work uh, as employment, I've seen you. Re- you are the hand that's been reaching out. You're the you're the the guy with the uh, AA pledge or the responsibility. I've seen that over and over again over the years. And uh, where did you learn that from, or is that just something kind of innate?
1: Well, it was how I was sponsored. Yeah, I had a huh. service, work, sponsor. I didn't know that people, you know, get sponsored sometimes and they don't, aren't given us, you know, that take on a service commitment.
0: Huh. And uh-huh.
1: so just like with you and uh, some of the other uh, people that we know. Uh, mm-hmm. That and you'll see, like you know, Larry that makes the coffee or something yeah, like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it can be just as sim- uh, simple as the person that goes in and straightens up or puts the chairs out or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, that comes behind people without saying, "Hey, what? A, you know, here, look at me." Right. You know, so it's been a where, where my home group is. They're, you know, in normal times, non-COVID times, right. you know, there's a, a lot of opportunities for service over there, and um,
0: yeah, new people coming in all the time.
1: Yeah, and it's sometimes it's sometimes it's the you know it's being there to you know welcome the new person just have a, like your your handshake uh, thing and getting to know people initially. I've got uh, I've developed over time of it's, it's I don't have a problem walking up to somebody and introducing myself and just saying hello, yeah, you know, giving them my phone number, uh, and and try to feel like I've got a fair feel for if I seems like they're. Not open to that. That I can just re- let that go.
0: Yeah, you know, I
1: yeah. I don't, I don't. They don't have to do it. Anything, you know. But I want them yeah. to know that I, I can remember what it felt like to come in, sit on the back row, and not want to be called on.
0: <laughs> right, and not want to be there, perhaps. Right, right. right. The, the, going back to your first exposure uh, to yeah. AA. So you've you've lived this extraordinary life for quite a number of years now, almost 28 years sober coming up. When when you meet somebody that's new or maybe questioning whether or not they feel like they really have a problem, whether they really want to be in AA, maybe the court has uh, made them come a certain number of times. Given your experience and how vastly different as compared to most newcomers, a guy who was in prison for life and then he's out, now he's in the recovery, how do you bridge the gap between the experience that you have and the way that they see that experience, do, do you find that they that that, that creates uh, a greater reluctance to work with you or to talk with you or, or are they more drawn to you? I don't know if I'm asking that question right.
1: So it's it's a good question because yeah. I don't I don't keep from. I'm willing to talk about having been to prison. I don't right. think it's a, I don't think it's a selling point.
0: Right. Right.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been to prison. You know, if I, I spent 34 years incarcerated and that's, well, this is, you know, so then by say, well, you need to be in a, <laughs> <laughs> so there's an energy that yeah. I, you know, I like to talk in energy, but so there's an energy
0: that, yeah. that
1: I, that I know is true. Yeah. I think it's a spiritual energy it's uh-huh. a product of being plugged into Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. There's a, a line in the... the there's, there's, a, there's a part in the 12 and 12, and one, one of the things that uh, it, it says, that it's an individual... They're talking about meditation. Sure. And, you know, and they'll say it's an individual adventure, each to be developed in his own way. Hmm. One of the first fruits is uh, emotional balance. And I thought... I said, why wouldn't you want that? Right, uh-huh. so... And I... Took to that, I had practiced a spiritual practice w- before and I just fell away from it. So when I got back this time, I was so anxious when I first got sober. I understand how, how people feel. And for many new people I work with, unless they you've been in enough meetings with me that yeah. I, I don't have a problem talking about it, but I don't have to talk about it all the time. And then for most people, you might as well be saying, likes to live in Africa.
0: Right, you know, or, right. Or some right. country
1: somebody's never lived in before.
0: Right. They can't relate.
1: You say, you know, yeah, I spent 10 years in Ch- China and they, they think, oh, wow, but that was weird. And they just go right on to something right on. that they're more familiar
0: with. Right on. But but you have the, the kind of the rare qualifications to talk to the guy who's sitting there comparing his insides to everybody else's outsides, who's been to prison and may still be holding on to some of the things that would be barriers to being content in AA. you're the guy who can go talk to him with a level of understanding that surpasses a guy like me who doesn't have that particular experience
1: but you know you're you're I, i'll say this and for when we were inside that the people that came in initially i the people i was drawn to and this is just a kind of a, i think early recovery thing no matter where you're located uh-huh. is that they're You're you're drawn to something that looks similar to you. Yeah. They talk sort of the same. They sound sort of the same. But some of the people whose sobriety that really impressed me were people that were coming into prison because the people in prison knew, you know, about getting into prison. They didn't want, you know, it was how do you stay out? And, yeah. and you you stay out by learning to abide by the rules and regulations, not put alcohol and drugs in your body yeah. and stuff like that. There's some yeah. things that uh, a, a guy like you doesn't, what you know well is uh-huh. what it took for you to not drink anymore.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Right? And people... Uh, you know yeah you know, my first sponsor was like is you know like i say he was as different as night and day to any life i'd lived
0: yeah i get that
1: the sponsor that i used after i got after him was mm-hmm. the same way and jimmy s yeah. you know but we lo- we i love him
0: yeah i do too he's a good man and uh obviously he's doing a good job with you uh, based on what i know about you and the the way i see you interact with other people around around the club this has been Pretty amazing. And I think very inspiring to be able to talk to you like this and be able to share this as part of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast that it may reach some other people out there. I want to ask you maybe just one other thing. And I've been asking all my guests this. And that is about the opportunity versus the difficulties that have arisen because of having to do meetings by Zoom. How you just feel about the whole format and and what we have been elevated to or reduced to by the virus,
1: huh, it's interesting. it's a great because we reach more people all around the world, yeah, and we can connect with people all around the world, so what we right. can only do at in an international conference on a really brief way for a weekend we can yeah. do every day now, so that's yeah. a blessing, yeah, that is guaranteed uh mm-hmm. comparably, there are enough small groups, and you and I attend some. You know, mm-hmm. where it's very intimate, not unlike the traditional home group feels. Right. Some of the other groups have been eaten up by a large number of people, and it feels like a great big giant meeting where you might be at an international conference. Yeah. But, um, and for some of those, are, are uncomfortable for me because they're different. I, my expectation is mm-hmm. that this meeting I go to that has this name would be the meeting that i was used to from the past and it's not that meeting anymore some of them have remained very close to what they are because i go to a number of zoom meetings for me it's family alcoholics anonymous is my family and i can and i've I've learned wherever i went to a meeting anywhere in in these united states and i have not been to any outside the united states other than on zoom Uh that but that i find my people it's a benefit now it's also you miss the the the, the interpersonal communication
0: yeah and the so, ability to be able to just grab people after the meeting or one of the things i know that i miss the most although i'm i'm really grateful for zoom allowing us to continue to do what we need to do but the one thing i do miss is the spontaneous laughter right because when somebody is speaking it's it's almost impossible to be able to time it Such that you can hear everybody laugh, but I haven't found it to be too bad of a substitute. I'm always grateful to see you on the Zoom meetings that you and I attend, and you and I have a tendency to attend the same kind of smaller, more intimate meetings. Although I go to several that are very, very large as well, Um, but I consider any group I go to my you know they say get a home group. I consider any group I go to my home group because I feel at home in AA. So Mm -hmm. everywhere I go, I'm at home, and it's a I don't know if you feel that way, but I I, I kind of sense you do, uh, given the the number of meetings you and I have frequented together over the years.
1: Yeah, I can find. I'm, I don't need just a particular. I I have my people. Yeah, you know, and I know sure. you've got your people. But, yeah. but I've had I've had other people, and you know, and we've lost you know some through just yeah. like life, mm-hmm. life, and and they get yeah. you get old, and you stay sober long enough, then you, sometimes things happen.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, I get that. Well, Tom, thank you for, for doing this. Was there anything else that, that you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with as we, as we wrap this up?
1: I got a little thing. Let's see how it goes across. I'll take a, just a minute. Let me
2: think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we can begin to have dreams for each other, we can build something new. It can be. If we're building something new, we can ask God to help us. And we will be busy while we are asking. I think God likes to help people who are already busy working for their dreams.
0: Mm. Amen. That is a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And I'm going to need to play that back for so I can memorize it. Tom D., you're a beautiful man, and I love you. You're a great AA brother, and I really appreciate you doing this today, just taking the time to to let other people get to know you better. I, I wish you well, and I'll see you at a meeting in the next day or two. Absolutely. Will. <laughs> okay, I, I brother. love you. You know how yeah. I love you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I love, I love I, you. You're one yeah. of my guys, man. Yeah. 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 And I like yeah. being one of your guys, man. I, that, <laughs> this is a, definitely a posse I want to be in. So God bless you, Tom. And uh, thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. God bless you, brother.
0: Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next new episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.